from the north, mortals of this earth, welcome. Now we revisit our examination of the death trap, a matter that the general population erratically assume can't be investigated and has to remain a complete unknown. Indeed, perhaps this subject and its understanding remains the greatest unawareness in our pool of collective human ignorance, which is one of many reasons for the Forum to continue pursuing education on it. Throughout history, mankind has used many tools to lift pieces of the heavy veil, to name but a few such as entheogens, OBE, astral projection, illuminations, deep trance, clairsentience, yogic death, prophecy, inherited science from lost advanced civilizations, and of course NDE, which has exploded in modern times due to improved revival methods. However, our guest tonight has a somewhat original attitude to the entire thing. Regarding the wheel of life as an earth-bound prison, he draws upon all kinds of sources to glean some lesser-known lessons and to look for a better way out. Here's a few examples. If you're going to get memory wiped before you come in and you don't remember anything you've ever done in a past life and you have to keep doing it over and over and over again, that's not learning. Like you say, that's insanity. And that's our world. Mm. A true place mm. of learning would be, I touch, you know, you touch the stinging nettle, your fingers get burned, you learn to put gloves on and you stop doing it. Remembering is a key part in the growth process. If you take the remembering away, it's obviously not growth. It's just insanity. This idea you've had about the grace... Yeah. Believe it or not, I've had the same thought. You're the first I've, I've met who, who has expressed it like that. So I, I find that very interesting if several people have the mm. same. And I, I mean, we're probably not alone. That alone indicates no. that probably others have had that thought too. And where does that come yeah. from? I think I find it interesting. But as soon as I read, as soon as I got to that point of the story, I, I had to start asking the key questions, which are the, the problems arising is like, well, who are these prisoners? Why are they prisoners? What are they prisoners from? Mm. That's not described. Right. Why are the prisoners? Why are the prisoners uh, not in a prisoner of war camp? Why are they in a cave? Um, why uh, is this a natural cave? Is it a man-made cave? Mm. What type of cave is it? Um, why are these beings spending so? Whoever these beings are, which are never described, why are the beings spending so much time and so much energy tricking a bunch of prisoners into believing into, into deceiving them and tricking them? Mm. To me, these are absolutely foundational questions because it's indicated right in the allegory that the prisoners are us, that we we are the prisoners, but here we are the absolute foundation things that would explain who and what we really are aren't in the story. That souls were eaten first, like sort of eaten and processed by the moon and then sent to the sun or if the, the moon was just providing the time period and then the, the, the uh, soul, the, the thing was being eaten by the sun itself. 
Um, mm. Because for me, that then that's chapter 13 of the book. It's all about the word soul. It's all about, or in English, how did that word come about? Because in English, huh? the word son is so strange to be used for that. In, in most European cultures, it's soul, S-O-L. Mm. And mm. it's the exact same sound, the exact same word as to what became soul in the English language for this supposed part that we, we would call the psyche in, in, in ancient Greek, right? So mm. it, it, automa- it indicates automatically that this, this light in the sky and this thing that we think of within us are linked because it has the same name. Mm. Mm. And it's always been a very good metaphor too, uh, because as above, so below. Those scattered pockets of survival from the ancient mysteries. Mm-hmm. Because the ancient mystery schools were the big competition with Christianity in the beginning. Obviously, Christianity right. functioned uh, in a way as it too, but it became very soon hijacked. So Mithras, Isis, Zoroaster, all this stuff had to go for them to win. I actually did a life recapitulation. It took me four and a half years. Um but I'm also seeing it's also preparation for this life review that is going to be attempted to be thrown at us in yeah, the afterlife, yeah. which is in many cases designed to bring as much guilt and shame and regret to us, i.e. karmic hooks to make us agree to come back in another body so we can learn to be more loving. But if we know, if we've reviewed our life into complete detail, that there is nothing that can, then there's nothing that can surprise us in this after death life review, we will be it's a way of regaining our power not just in this world but in the other world so who you there heard in conversation with me is howard mikoski an ontario canadian expat residing in norway who for the last 25 years has studied ancient wisdom traditions of the world his journey began with a brief ice hockey career while at school and subsequently worked a few years as a hockey coach. He also worked as a writer of sports history and wrote his first book already in 99 called Hockeyology, which grew out of his university thesis and was about early hockey history. This learning experience taught him the craft as an author, which he later would utilize fully. Having the gift of breaking down sports, He could have written more books on the subject over the years, but never pursued that track, although he did some analyzing on the Norwegian TV2 for the 14 Winter Olympics and gave a lecture in 17 on the 72 Summit series in Oslo for a combined group from the Canadian and Russian embassies, as Norwegians both deeply into hockey. Having been an entertainer during his student years, he also started his working career as a stand-up comedian specializing in Impressionism. This lasted 10 years while also gaining small roles in some TV shows and movies to pay the bills while striving to obtain his own show. After having a depression in 97, Mikowski came across a documentary on Egyptian pyramids that changed his life. With what can only be described as a flash of illumination, he knew at that moment he was to fully devote his focus and put every moment of his time to study the ancient world and the lore of yore. 
never having had much money and suffering through a number of very difficult periods financially, he nonetheless put what excess was available towards traveling to ancient sites for exploration and study. He made it three times to Egypt for long explorations, to Mexico, studied stone circles in Scandinavia and England, cathedrals such as Chartres in France, studied cities such as Florence, Paris, Rome and Berlin, albeit all of them great holiday sites, 90% of his time spent there was towards work and study. About two years into his Egyptian studies, Howard Mikoski contacted John Anthony West as his was one of the first books he read on the subject that made sense and became like a direction tool. In 04, they met in Luxor and he received a lot of information about how to move about Egypt to research temples and the like, which was very inspiring and encouraging. Good fortune then brought him to spend time with a certain Korean Zen monk who was riddled with rumors of him being in a lineage of the emperor's doctors and that he was near death and met an old monk in the mountains who showed him what to do to heal himself. Howdy describes it as spending time with Yoda from Star Wars. He also was mentored by several native Indian medicine men and learned how three different tribes, Tsutina, Ojibwe and Lakota, handled their ceremonies with what was similar or unique. Further, he studied under some herbalists and alchemists, including a doctor of medical Qigong. He became less concerned with uncovering how the sacred sites were built and more why and how such sites can be utilized today. His studies in Egyptology, pyramids, Zen, native Indian medicine and alchemy led him to write the book The Power of Then, Revealing Egypt's Lost Wisdom. Then in 05 he fell into a canyon in western Canada and had a transformative death experience. This awakening revealed the non-reality of self and he went through a hard period of confusion illness as well as clarity to integrate his insights, forcing a focus on the only place he he thought he had avoided, within. This naturally led to a change in research and writing, now dealing with reality and the self in a different way. He delved into the work of Gnostic and Hermetic teachings, stone circles and megaliths, as well as the writings and teachings of Richard Rose, the creator of Tat Foundation. The fruition became the book Falling for Truth, A Spiritual Death and Awakening. His passion for history also led to researching topics such as the Cathars and Knights Templar. Following a study trip to Florence, new information came to light concerning manipulations of modern history regarding world expositions of the 1800s looking for clues to help explain the nature of standard reality and how and why this may have shifted over time. From his study of 1800s historical narratives and the lies surrounding the then popular world fairs came his 19 book Exposing the Expositions, Ancient Rome in America. After 21, Howdy was inspired to look into an exploration of the allegory of Plato's cave, and he began a more detailed study of ancient Greek thought, 
Soul Traps and Gnosticism. Finally, in 22, this became the book Exit the Cave, Ending the Reincarnation Trap, which is the basis of our conversation tonight. Having authored four books on controversial history and philosophy, he decided that the next project should be a theater stage play based on Exit the Cave, because he realizes that such material presented in dramatic form might be the most powerful way to share their ideas. Since uh, playwriting is new to him, he is currently spending time learning the thinking process, the layout, and how to present a story on stage, compared to a novel or movie. Apart from interviews with other shows, such as Conscious TV, Higher Side Chats, Open Your Reality, Tat Foundation, Leak Project, Archaics, Aeon Byte Gnostic Radio, to name some examples, he is also posting regularly to his YouTube channel called Howdy Mikoski Talks. They are not intended to give you all the answers, but to make you ask the right questions and examine your thoughts, beliefs, reality and the history of this world. In other words, it's an educational process of formation for independent thinkers, and as such, he is fully in line with the philosophy of Forum Borealis, and indeed, the very conversation between us, starting now. Welcome to Forum Borealis, Howard. Hi, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. Hey, maybe I should, uh, is it howdy people call you? Yeah, that's that's sort of what all my friends use, yes. <laughs> so I guess I'm not going to be very original if I say howdy, howdy. That's right from when I was four years old, yep. <laughs> okay. So uh, like people heard, you're from Canada originally, uh, but you actually are I'm so happy about this because I've tried to feature, you know, half our audience is American. Um, and the rest of the half is all over the world, particularly Anglophone countries. But I always try to feature people from Scandinavia if, you know, if they deserve a platform to the world. And it's that's the kind of weird thing. You, you're Canadian, but you live in my country. Yeah. And so I get to, right? Although, of course, yeah, I, I thought, well, I didn't know where we lived. I thought, you know, obviously we lived closer than we could have had a, a meetup, but we're, uh, yeah. Norway's a big country for people who don't know, and we're kind of in two different parts of it, but uh, we're close enough, at least we're in the same time zone. Exactly. And if you uh, lay down the country as common illustration here, then it goes all the way down to Italy. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, there is distances involved, but... Um, I think we'll uh, probably get to meet at some point because we have, our paths have crossed before, as uh, we talked about before we started here, without us knowing it. <laughs> Other people have tried to co connect us several times, <laughs> mm -hmm. and now they. Yeah, so, yeah, so it's going to be obviously interesting, and um, as always, I like to let people know that I don't have all the answers to whatever I present. This is. I'm just sharing my thesis, my work over a long period of time um, to get people to think and ask questions. And that's really what this is about. It's about asking questions you normally don't ask to come up with your own answers. You don't need mine or yours. It's, it's, it's your personal answers, but you have to listen to other views before you can really track down what might be true. Mm -hmm. The Socratic method. You know, they say that uh, 
the ancient uh, illuminated um, they call it philosopher but you know they were wise men uh, pythagoras he one of his teaching techniques was to he had a class but what he did was that he asked questions forbidden to answer and so right. they were forbidden to answer the questions and that's a pretty neat psychological trick because it the, the subconsciousness you know filling a hole as the beatles said the subconsciousness will try to uh, throw in answers there so it will bump come as flashes in them after a while and especially if you know what questions to ask and i seems to me you do based on what i've seen so far and uh, yeah in questioning there can be actually more answers than in, yeah. <laughs> than in many answers yeah I've, I've heard it i've heard it oh sorry i've heard it presented somewhere of course that what we have are answers we are, we have all the answers within the problems is that we don't have the right question we're asking mm. constantly the wrong question so we can never reach the answers within we're reaching so that that makes sense is that a big part of the of the real path is finding your true questions once you find your true questions the rest gets easy very few people have their true question mm. well, well put <laughs> Look, uh, I uh, originally wanted you on, and I have to give a shout out, and I'm, and I'm so sorry. I, I tried to find the name of the dude who suggested I should have you on, but I couldn't find it. So if you're listening, my anonymous friend, uh, I'm I'm very grateful to you for having done that, and uh, to myself for actually having taken your suggestion seriously. <laughs> but what teased me when you were pitched here is your Egypt book, which I originally intended we should converse about today, but I have moved on from that opinion after you sent me the manuscript of your new book, which is now going to be what we're going to converse about. And long time listeners, you'll love this conversation because it's going to touch, well, at least his book, the new book touches about many different tidbits that we've um featured in this show before uh, for example um, the show we did with cliff high uh, about uh, death or the show we did with um, lindsay about uh, the theosophic view on the cycles of the world and all this and notwithstanding anthony peak we did one with him so it's, it's folks. It's in this line of show we're going to have today. So, but the original book. I want us to start just at, at least addressing it and and um, mentioning it so that we can move on to your new book because this is what I was curious about. Uh, I myself uh, work in what I could call maybe a Greek or Egyptian tradition. Mm-hmm. That's as far as I'm going to go to describe it. And to me, Egyptian stuff is. There's so much uh, crap out there, honestly, and uh, it's inflation in in stuff. But I always keep an eye out open in case there's some uh, golden nuggets coming my way. And so uh, they pitched your book, and your website is obviously launched during your book because it's called – so. what's your website called? Let's take that immediately. Uh, At this point, it's still called Egyptian-Wisdom-Revealed.com. At some point, I will switch it over, but that's that's from many years ago when the book first came out, and um, yeah, so it's still that's still the name of it, yeah, yeah. And um, I saw that um, may he rest in peace, Anthony West, 
was bragging about that book. And that's more than good enough for me because I, I know sufficiently about his level to know that if he endorses it, it can't be bad. So what do you want to tell us about your, your original book? Well, um, it's interesting because, I mean, that was written, that I first began that 25 years ago. Mm. And uh, I began that out of a pretty massive depression. I was at the point of uh, actually wanting to kill myself. Um, and, and I would have done it if I could have come up with a way that wasn't going to be messy for somebody who's going to find it. <laughs> that, that's, how, that's how deep the spiral of my life had gotten. Right. And um, a television program came on. It was a Nova program on pyramid building. And instantaneously on seeing the, the, uh, the program, I knew that's what I was supposed to do, that my life was about finding the secrets of ancient Egypt. And of course, included the Maya and the Inca, everyone else in the ancient world. And instantly, the depression was gone. I was filled with a massive amount of energy. I got very, very lucky within the course of three or four years. I met uh, several Native Indian medicine men that I spent time with. There was a, a Korean monk that I spent almost a year with. There was a number of Qigong doctors from China. So I was very, very lucky in the early stages. I got a very, very good foundation. Um, but now looking back, even though I wrote 500 pages and went through a ton of material. There's a lot in the book that I've, um, I no longer, I don't want to say I don't agree with it, but it's more like it's it, a lot of it's up for question. Mm. Since I've gone through the last two or three or four years of work, there's a lot of things in that original text that I held on to um, almost with a sense of, I hope this is true and proceeded from that uh, standpoint. And now I have to step back and say, I'm not really sure. We we know so little about this period. And I might actually do a complete rewrite of the book in the next year because of it. Wow. Huh. I'll be interesting to re read your original book and then compare it to the rewrite, actually. <laughs> yeah, it'll be, uh, it would be, uh, for example, uh, good a good example of it would be, I held Old Kingdom Egypt in very high regard, as if they automatically got a free pass because of some of what they were able to build. Now, I was very clear already then that Old Kingdom Egypt didn't build the pyramids. Old Kingdom Egypt didn't, didn't do a lot of the statue work. They didn't do anything that's built with the megalithic blocks, anything that's built mm. with the, that has the, um, you know, the stone tool or the, um, the obvious diamond drill cuts and the and the carved the, the, the impossible carved granite statues and whatnot they 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 didn't do that they didn't oh it's much older isn't it yeah they're way way older so mm. I, I realized that but i still it took me a while to actually fully understand that as much as we're trying to understand pharaonic egypt pharaonic egypt was trying to understand this culture that had been there five or ten or fifteen thousand years ago and they were doing their best to understand it, just like we're doing our best to understand it now. They, they, they I now see they didn't have much of it figured out. And, and it's so interesting when I look back, I, I look back on my first trip to Egypt, and I don't know how I didn't see it. For example, certain pyramids at Saqqara are so, are so an example of this, where you see the giant blocks at the, at the base of these, uh, of these uh, pyramids, the one, usually the ones that the pyramid text in them. So they have these giant, perfectly positioned blocks for about two or three courses. And then you'll wind up with just rubble, which is junk. Mm. And it, 
I, how did I not clue into it that the bottom part of it is the original pyramid from a long, long time ago? Most of it was destroyed, and Pharaonic Egypt came by and attempted to rebuild it as best they could, and that was the best that that was the best they had, and it was this sense of um, putting the energy, you might say, or putting the focus in the wrong place of where, where the wisdom really sits or where the wisdom really existed in this realm. It's far, far more deeper in our past than I had ever, I had ever believed. And so that that's a big part of what will become the overturning is trying to show that the, 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 uh, what we consider pharaonic Egyptians were, were as much of an archeologist of the stuff that's there as we are an archeologist of the stuff that's there. Mm. Well, just make sure not to throw the baby out with the bathwater because, um, you know, the mainstream narrative, the narrative you're all trained to think in, um, the very exoteric, uh, hopeless, helpless narrative is that we started out primitive and then we evolved and become uh, gradually better. And uh, uh, now we're at the peak, very chauvinistic, very childish. In fact, it's, it's so infantile that I think I think the powers that be in academia, etc., know better, but people are vested, blah, blah, blah. It's a long story. Uh, we've had shows about criticism of this before. And my point is, in actual reality, it's uh, opposite. The further back you go, well, you could say that we have evolved from the medieval ages, but from there and backwards, you see they get brighter and brighter and brighter. And so for me, and I've known this since I was a teenager, so for me, it's always been like the older something is, the more Seriously, I'm going to take it because the closer they are to the source. Now, when we talk about the old kingdom, yes, it didn't start there, obviously. Yeah, I'm glad you, you're realizing that. But the thing is that if they have had uh, predecessors, at least they are closer to them than we are. And, you know, they told, I think it was maybe seven Greeks who ever got real access to, to well, in different levels. I don't think Herodot got fully initiated but Solon certainly did uh, Pythagoras did many others even Plato went down it's disputed how much access he got but according to these people who were not shy of writing about it unlike the Egyptians who who guarded it jealously um, yeah that's true they said that uh, the Egyptians themselves admitted that you know, they called the Greek, Greek children in their culture, but they admitted that nothing started with them. They're just a survival of, obviously, what, due to Plato, we call the Atlantic civilization. Uh, and as, by the way, folks, check out Bright Insight, Jimmy Corsetti. He may be, he may be onto something about where the capital was, the eye of the Sahara, the Richard structure, but that's another matter. So if they were closer, I expect that uh, in their law, there should be uh, purer remnants. So because you're very right, they themselves were children of this thing. But I, I think the greatest problem, and, and tell me if you disagree, um, sure. but the greatest problem for us looking back to the Egyptian culture today is that we have very, it's very hard for us to try to crack the way they were thinking, the way they were um, teaching, the way the, the process they used to uh, get to the truth. Because Unbeknownst to most people, uh, although academics know this, at least in theory, is that 
the collective consciousness changes throughout the ages. And so you don't have to go far back when there was a complete... In in fact, you can even just go back to the 50s. (laughs) You can see how different... People were thinking differently. They had different values. They had different expectations. And a huge problem today is that people project. They project from the present backwards. Oh, this guy's a racist, or this guy's this, or this guy's that. Because we use our current understanding, value, consensus, overtone window, paradigm, whatever you want to call it. And we try to squeeze these round bricks into these square holes. And that's a huge problem. Now, imagine going back to ancient times like uh, you have uh, done it's, it's going to be even harder and i think intuition is our best tool in that of course a lot of knowledge yes but we also need that inner connection that intuition to try to get behind a layer of especially symbolism and mythology which is kind of the kind of a very important way for them to preserve something but it also becomes like a um dam against cracking it what do you think of of uh, them apples uh, it brought up three ideas for me, and I'll, I'll touch on all three of them very quickly. One is uh, this idea of, of a different mindset. Yeah. Another is energy. And the third is uh, another reality. So uh, from the standpoint of mind, that was when I began my research at 25 years ago. I realized very quickly that I wouldn't be able to try to even ascertain what the ancient world might have been doing if I was thinking like a modern person. Mm. I realized that they they don't they won't think like I do they won't see the world like I do so that was the original reason I started trying to find these these medicine people because I thought they would be closer in mindset to that time than mm. I could ever be in my normal mindset so yeah to me that was a, that was a huge part right at the beginning was could I get myself into an ancient mindset in order to think like it think more like an ancient the second part for me that became very unbelievably valuable, and that was, of course, the time at these sites. And that's a, it's been because if you can't feel the site, if you can't feel where you are, and there are sites that are unbelievably beautiful, there are sites that are unbelievably dark. And, um, but when I go to a place like, say, Giza or Abu Sir or Teotihuacan in Mexico, the, the obviously most ancient of the sites, the energy is completely different than any other, um, than, than just being at Luxor or Karnak or Palenque. The, these sites, these old sites are, I feel like I'm in a different universe. That's the best way to describe it, that I'm literally mm-hmm. touching a place that's somewhere else. The energy is so completely different. Mm-hmm. And uh, it makes it, it's something I've, I've said many times that anyone who tries to study the ancient world over the internet or through a book is not going to have very much success because you have to feel the sights. You have to. So you recommend people to travel to the, these places. If you you can't study them any other way, yeah. Like mm-hmm. even just my even just when I went to England and went to Stonehenge and found out that Stonehenge has no energy, that it's a dead site. Found out that Avebury was a site that I nearly was on fire at. Um, I didn't know why that would be, and it took me five or six years later to finally realize that. Oh yeah, Stonehenge had been uh, completely dismantled in the 1950s. All the stones were taken out of the ground, carted off site, uh, taken away. They wow. excavated it all. They brought they brought stones back. We don't know what they brought back. They brought stones that looked similar to the original, cemented them in place, and then left. Wow. So it makes sense that Stonehenge, for example, is a dead site. But I wouldn't I wouldn't have been able to do the second part. Maybe of the- Glastonbury. Did you go there? What's that? Glastonbury. Did you go there? 
No, I didn't make it all the way to Glastonbury. Mm. So, I mean, I can assume what that place is like, but I didn't actually make it on that particular trip. But I can assume yep. what it's what's there. Yeah. Mm. But but it was just it was just interesting to I think it's an important it's an absolutely important part of the process. It's one thing to study books and pictures and and pre- that's like preparation. It's preparation for mm-hmm. your mind to handle what you're going to experience when you get there. Mm-hmm. And so for me, uh, you have to be one one day at Chartres Cathedral is equal to a thousand days of reading books on it. <laughs> Wonderful. Go on. Oh, um, yeah. And, well, uh, were you complete in your reasoning? You you were uh, naming no. number one, number two. Yeah. So the third the third piece of that was when I mentioned it's sort of in when I touch another realm, and and I've come to see that's absolutely completely true. Not only is it another, the best way to describe it is these the for example the pyramid sites in Egypt they're many resets ago. Mm. You know we're 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 in a new one. We're going through another one right now, and this reality is going to be gone just like the old ones were they were mostly eliminated but little bits and pieces survived little bits and pieces of energy little bits and pieces of that time frame are uh, still made it through and uh, that's again I, I, when i touch these sites like i say i i was in uh that's why i enjoyed them so much is i felt like I, i'm not in this realm anymore i mean i'm in a different universe and it's still accessible from those sites i mean not that you can't access from wherever you are of course time and space don't exist like we think but mm. there's a it's much easier you know we both live in in norway and norway is some of the most spectacular stone circles in the world actually very few people recognize the the, the number the, i found at least 50 to 60 now stone mm. circles in norway and it's it's so funny how many people from this country will get on planes they'll go to england and they will go to stone circles there and we have them right down the road <laughs> and what's so nice is nobody goes to them they're completely ignored here the energy in most cases is still unbelievably yeah. clean it's still unbelievably pure i've got you know a hundred stories maybe because people don't uh, go there That's- they don't go no nobody mm. shows up at it i mean Literally every time I go there, I'm pretty much alone. the The only time I was I was at a stone circle. Um, uh, there's a large number of them between Frederikstad and, and Sarpsborg, uh, in mm. southern Norway. And uh, one time I was there, I was spending a few days just sitting in in one of the stone circles, and I saw some people come up to the to to the circle. I'm like, this is so great! I actually get to finally meet somebody who actually likes because they were they were there to see the stone. They were actually mm. you know, and, oh, okay, mm. somebody who understands. I walked over and I realized it's somebody who had been at one of my lectures five years before. You know, <laughs> I knew who they were. They, they found out about the stones because I'm the one who told them. Right. So, so right. that's unfortunately where we are sometimes with with these sites. They're just not known, ignored, or. Like you say, we've been given, everyone's been given a false story on what's there. And so they just get ignored. The only positive is because they've been ignored for so long, energetically, they're still quite clean. So there's still a lot of power and energy and healing that can happen at those sites um, because there's no tourists. You're right. Now, uh, I asked Glossenbury because uh, it triggered a memory when I was there. I, I, I say it's like a burnt out whore, that place, but... I venture there's still energy there. From my own experience, I was uh, resting at with the uh, well and the tour, and uh, there's a harmony there. There's a beauty there in their vibes, if you like, that 
uh, spoke to me. So despite being a very like a new age popular pilgrimage site for all sorts of people, um, there's still some remnants there. But you, you, you make a very good point about some of these stone circles here. You know, they say they go back to the end of the Ice Age, which makes sense then that uh, there will be a lot in the south. There's a lot in the west too, yes. uh, west and south, uh, southwest. But um, no, if they have energy, it's probably because people aren't <laughs> polluting it with their tourist vibes. But uh, it's like you said, it's right down the road because in many cases, they just make these highways and, oh, there's some ancient memory. Ah, forget about that. It's more important that we can drive more effectively through this place. So in many cases, they ruin this structure to give room for a mall or a housing project or a new highway, etc. So they are declining uh, more and more. But uh, you got another good point you made is, and I, I think, you know, to be at the sites, if you're sensitive enough, at least, or, or connected enough, you get uh, dragged into another world, another mindset, another reality. And I think part of the reason, there's two components to that. It's, it's not just that, let's say, some very refined people were gathering here and energizing the space. Yes, that happened in many cases, for example, with pyramids, etc. But it's also that the sites are carefully chosen. For example, we know that when the first Christians in this country, um, you know, when when the first people learn here that we were Christian but Catholics, that's not true. I'm going to have a show about that. Uh, a friend of mine has written a great book about the Christianization of Norway. It was the Celtic Church, which was much closer to the ancient uh, pagan traditions here, mm -hmm. which may, made it more easy for them to convert because the Celtic Church had lore from even from Egypt. Uh, and they say themselves that Jesus created that church when he came with uh, Joseph of Arimathea. <laughs> As uh, I mean, long before the crucifixion, etc. I mean, whatever you think of that, that's their own story. Now, the Celtic church was crushed in the 1200s, I think, and the last bastion of it, unbeknownst to most, were in Norway. You can see it in if you go to the papal bulls that they were issuing, threatening Norway to come into the Catholic fold. Um, and eventually we yielded. But then, uh, by then, uh, the fun for the Catholic lasted just 100 years because then Reformation came <laughs> and chased them out again. <laughs> but my point is, what they did was that they built their churches here in Norway on ancient sacred sites because they had this understanding. Yes, it was political. It's easier to get people on board to the new religion if we maintain the old holidays, the, the old sacred days, etc., and the sacred places. So this is well-known. Christianity did this all over the world. They just usurped the old. For better or worse, they did this. And um, so it was easier to maintain. So it's that the understanding that this place was loaded already. You know, you can talk about dragon lines ley lines, grids on earth, etc. But yeah. the third uh, important factor to these sites actually speaking to you is that they were often laid down with meticulous, careful, deep understanding of sacred laws. We uh, tend to refer to it these days as sacred geometry. I mean, Shwala de Lubitsch, which I'm sure you're familiar with, he wrote a lot about uh, some of these uh, structures in Egypt that were built on much deeper sciences and principles than 
of course, Egyptologists, they are just a cult. The Egyptologists are, are, in my view, humble opinion or not so humble opinion, a moronic cult. It's kind of a religion. It's, it's, it's often not even science-based. They find something and they try to force it into a narrative they already have. And archaeology in itself is suffering from that. But be that as it may, we have then sites that are built upon deeper cosmic principles, if you like, even if it's not like, uh, you know, crystal-driven Rimanas flying around, even if it's just stone-based technology because they were big in stone and, and, and sound. So we have that, we have the place itself, and we have the things they were doing there. So I believe those three components are important to get into the flow of it. Yeah, oh, it's pretty much how I have come to see it. All, all parts are, all parts make up the whole. And just one thing, just for your own um, interest, which is which for me was interesting when I still was giving, this was many years ago when I first came to Norway, when I, when I actually did these, take tours down from Oslo to these sites. Mm. The, uh, one, a gentleman came with me and he had been tracking all of the original uh, Stavkirkas, which are mm. the very early uh, stone churches. And he had giant maps of them. And he had found that all of the stone, all, and like you say, all built on an ancient site originally. And they all lined up perfectly with where the modern um, uh, cathedral of Nideros is in Trondheim. Mm. So he had these giant maps with him. And then we went to each stone circle and he placed the stone circle on his map. And of course, they fit perfectly on one of these lines. There wasn't one of the circles, one of the places we went to that didn't fit on one of the few uh, of these Stavkirka church lines. So it's very clear that from as far back as the original building of these ancient sites, they were yeah, carefully chosen. And in fact, I see them as um, I see them as acupuncture points in the earth. I, I see the stones as the same mm. as we put an acupuncture needle in the body um, to access a particular meridian or move or change or alter energy. I think they were doing the exact same thing with the earth. So to me, every time I see a stone in the ground, to me, it's a it's an ancient acupuncture needle with the earth. I just want to say, I probably know that dude. Was it? Do you remember his name if I say it? Maybe. I could describe him, though. He probably wore glasses and had, uh, let's see, how long ago was it? He used to have a, a little long hair. No, two thousand and eight. He he was he was a little older. Yeah. Um. He was he had he had cancer. I think at some point. Um. And, and he had a friend who worked with. Uh, I think he worked out of Skansis. Is the name of the company. His very close friend, mm. uh, who was like a healer and was trying to heal him of the cancer. That's the best I can okay. recall from so long ago. No. Okay. It doesn't like, matter. If we had a picture, if we had a picture, I would know. Yeah, I could, I could send you a picture, but no, it's not important. Yeah. But it's funny how these <laughs> how paths are crossing. What is that? Okay, back to the show. Yeah, I wish so much I had contacted you back then. We we had a chance in getting in touch back then, but uh, never mind. Here we are. So, see, we're already well into your first book, but I, I think I have to do my duty as host now and ruthlessly steer us away and into your new book, which is what we agreed we'll talk about today. But uh, I'll probably have you back and we can always uh, muse about... I mean, you tell me when you start revising uh, the old book. Yeah. And we can have a show devoted entirely to the Egyptian. Sure. Yeah. But now you have uh, taken on... Oh, 
a, a similar huge task, I'd say. <laughs> Philosophically, very interesting. We've we've uh, gone down the road of reincarnation and uh, death here before. Uh, I had on uh, the Icelandic reincarnation uh, researcher. May he rest in peace. His name is uh, Erlander Haraldsson. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I know the name. Yeah, he cooperated with Ian Stevenson and all these old schoolers who who did great work in reincarnation work. Anyway, so uh, you have taken on this and you call the book. Let's hear, what do you call it? I gave it the title of Exit the Cave, Ending the Reincarnation Trap. Yeah. And you you call it book one. Is that like a series of book you plan doing? Right, because I knew there would be that I was putting out material to a certain point that I was considering was like a foundation into this subject. And I knew within a year's time, which I am, I'm continuing the research into much more delicate areas now, you might say. And there will be another <laughs> one sometime later at the end of the year, which is I'm hopefully to have a bit more hands-on practical detail of what the first book is presenting. Um, but I I, I, mm. I I feel it's a fairly good foundation. Would you would um, you think your viewers would like to hear a quick chapter overview so they know what's in it? Mm. Could be useful. I was actually thinking of uh, reading one and one chapter title and then get you comment upon each. Um, is that the way? Sure. Yeah, I was thinking something similar. So give it a shot. Yeah. Yeah. Let's do it that way then. Because sure. I have to uh, full disclosure. People, you know that I have tons of guests, right? And most of them are book uh, writers because this is, in a way, it's a book review show. And um, it's easy when I invite on guests because I usually have read the book, but I only have so much time. And uh, in cases like this, when it's a listener-suggested guest, you know, if I'm lucky, they do send me the book. But even when they do, I don't always have time to. And unfortunately, I peaked in your book much too late, uh, just recently. And so I haven't had time to read it fully. But let me say this. Having spent decades myself into this area, I immediately recognized, bam, 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 trigger after trigger. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. This dude, he's into he's into it. Because, you know, when you have read a certain, it doesn't matter what subject it is. It can be knitting. It can be cooking. When you have read enough, or maybe I shouldn't say read, but when you have comprehended enough or researched or studied or dealt with enough stuff, you, you get to a certain level of insight where you can very easily assess stuff that comes your way, what level it's on. Oh, yeah. Uh, things they speak about, the way they speak about in references, of course. And so I, I, I must be honest and say that when I heard about you and, and okay, it's a cool topic, I'll, I'll cover it. But I didn't have much, <laughs> I didn't have much hopes about the level. Uh, but, but this is my arrogance, right? I had to eat it because when I started to see through it's so down my alley, man. It's so down my alley. And I wish I had read your book properly before this conversation. I certainly will do oh, good. after. Uh, but again, it's enough there to know what we are going to tangle with today. And this is why I'm so pleased and, and uh, enthusiastic about it and why I just brushed away the original idea of covering your Egypt book and going straight to, straight to the cave. So your first... Part of the book is called a foundation. 
very orderly structured i'll say and the first chapter is called harvest moon and in this show prior episodes we've discussed the moon's mysterious uh, role you listeners if i take you back to my talk, one of my talks with alex akiris you remember how i talked about the theosophist said that the moon was like a dead planet uh, in um, dissolution so it was kind of sending us these poisonous vibes we went mentioned how Gurdjieff said that the moon consumes souls. We mentioned how Plutarch talked about how one of the deep reincarnation mysteries is. Uh, I don't say too much about it here, but it has to do with the Earth, the Moon, and the Sun. And the Moon is kind of uh, like a filter uh, that we have to pass. And we mentioned earlier how more people die around uh, New Moon when it's at its darkest, and how. Most people get born. There's a peak in births during um, full moon. And so we know, and women, of course, know how the moon is connected to cycles, which has to do with, you know, giving birth and the blood itself. And uh, yeah, the moon is a big deal. Even we can even fast forward to recent times. Um, what was his name? John. There's this UFO guy who talked about, he, he was taking the myths kind of literally he worked for the cia and uh, i don't know where he got this from but he claimed that there were huge towers at the moon and when we die we are being sucked our energy or soul is being sucked into these towers and i think they were operated by some kind of aliens um so a whole conspiracy about that very interesting. What's his name again? Very famous. I think he died recently. Val, Val, Val Valerian? Is that the guy? No. Never heard about Val Valerian until I saw your book. No. But uh, everybody knows him. He's been on Coast to Coast a million times. He was involved with the Bob Lazar story. Um, yeah. he, I think he brought Bob Lazar out to the public for the first time. Anyway, listeners know who I'm referring to. So we, here we have the moon, very, very mysterious. And your first chapter is called Harvest Moon. Can you take it from there? Yeah, the, the first chapter, I'm trying to give an overview, and I wanted to give a I, – I wanted to have a chapter that could also stand alone, that if somebody only read one chapter of the book, could they get could they get the, the presentation in? So it took me a long time. I wrote the chapter probably 20 times, hmm. and it touches such uh, ideas of specifically who or what may have created this reality and uh, why. Um, because that that's a foundational thing that I think is extremely incorrect. We have we had the discussions of reincarnation, of karma, what they really probably are compared to how it's presented. There's discussions in, in this chapter of um, the memory wipe, which is a which is a very nefarious part of our entire incarnation here, the inability to remember, yeah any of our previous incarnations or anything that happens in between lives it discusses full stop let me just bridge in here quickly yeah. and say that yeah. if people could retain memory we wouldn't have this dangerous insane dream of transhumanism you know how to prolong our organic existence uh, as much as possible because there will be no point of it and oh, indeed this is what all the uh, avatars have talked about that you have to remember yourself yeah it was the Gurdjieff's big uh, thing, of course. And I've always said, if you really want to control someone, forget about bribery or coercion or uh, blackmail or, or force or whatever. Uh, just remove the memory. 
and you can tell them everything, anything. And collectively, this is what has happened with us as uh, uh, mankind. We are like children. We don't know our roots. Anyway, you can go back to your reasoning. Just needed to put that up. No, that's a val- these are valuable points. I think it's so important. Um, mm. And and it, it's a perfect example, like I, I mentioned in the book of the of the television show Westworld. That's you know the robots mm. get killed. They get taken to the control center. They get they get cleaned up, repaired, and then they get mind wiped so that they can be sent back to be raped and murdered and killed again. And the story of Westworld itself really begins when two of the robots, Dolores and Maeve, start remembering what's happened to them, start remembering all of these other incarnations and how how they have been used and treated like garbage. And they finally come to the realization, well, I'm getting out of this place. Mm. And that, that that's a unbelievable metaphor to our our world that you can't, you know, it was so it's so hard, Al, that from the earliest times when you start looking into spiritual teachings, everyone tries to present how this is a school, this is a place of learning, this is a place of uh, gaining knowledge and getting better and perfecting yourself. But if you're going to get memory wiped before you come in, and you don't remember anything you've ever done in a past life, and you have to keep doing it over and over and over again, that's not learning. Like you say, that's insanity. And that's our world. Mm. A true place mm. of learning would be, I touch, you know, you touch the stinging nettle, your fingers get burned, you learn to put gloves on and you stop doing it. Remembering is a key part in the growth process. If you take the remembering away, it's obviously not growth. It's just insanity. Indeed, indeed. I have to say, um, one of the great things with your book is that you all you you have this and kudos man you have this natural ability to tie in modern popular references to classical ancient thought you do it uh, so seamlessly that first of all it's a very great way to educate uh, our current generations into the classic uh, because there's nothing we are discussing here today that hasn't been discussed throughout the ages. But so that's number one. And and people, you know, everybody know the Matrix reference, right? Yeah. Bam, suddenly Gnosticism is so popular because people get it. And that's what people do when you time and time again connect, like you just did now with Westworld and other examples in your book. Only for that, folks, you should get this book and read it because it will. He makes it so easy to to understand these deeper things that is very convoluted in the classical with <laughs> It's the suffering approach I've been using, you know, trying to decode uh, <laughs> old ways of thinking. So that's number one. Number two. This is the clue to everything. So I'm glad you start with that because this is the clue to everything. If you can retain, and with the retaining of your memory, I don't mean your ego or your, you know, in, in inferior trivial stuff. It's always been in esoteric disciplines, it's always been about how can I preserve. There's actually only two things you can take with you into death. How much you will try all the other stuff, it will burn in what the Egyptian call lake of fire. Right. You can take genuine love. And you can take genuine wisdom. These things that are written into your soul can be preserved. And we had a whole show about this. So everybody who listens now who hasn't heard that show but are interested in this subject matter should go and check out a show called The Secret of Secrets. It's all about how to build a so-called body of light, a fire body that Hermes and other ancient sources tried to teach us how to escape the trap where we kind of build a vehicle 
to preserve, you know, better to call it a structure, a consciousness structure that will help us preserve the essence, again, love and wisdom of what we have um, experienced, consumed and processed in our brief moment on earth. And if that is possible, there may just be a way out of here. And in a way, this is also your, your topic. But why did you call the chapter Harvest Moon? Um, because again, I, I also mentioned uh, the where the where and how the harvesting may take place, and mentioned that the moon and the sun are very much key elements of the whole package, and um, made a made a comment of that the the brightest moon of the year is the harvest moon, and and it said, well, what actually is being harvested? Does it really have anything to do with crops on earth, or is it mm. is it our spiritual essence that is being harvested without without our knowledge and so like i say this this chapter is just uh, it's just a feeler to get people to be prepared for the rest of the book and also to make sure that people want to continue to read it uh, mm. i also wanted to write it in such a way that there's a lot of people that won't like what they read it'll be very it will be very uh challenging to their to their standard beliefs, I'm, I, I mm. write a lot in this book about the Gnostic uh, tradition, a lot about the Cathars, a lot about various early traditions, and there's people that just may not want to hear that. So I wanted to make sure that the chapter, when it was completed, somebody could say, "I'm, I really do want to read the rest of the book," and some might say, "Okay, I know what this chapter is; not, it doesn't interest me." So it was that was also I built the chapter in such a way to. Um, to 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 determine who's going to keep reading and who's not. Hmm. I would say one big problem about that is that people are infantilized more than ever in our current contemporary culture. And so it's, you know, the ancients, for them, the highest virtue was wisdom, enlightenment. Today, it's um, satisfaction, enjoyment. And so, oh, I don't like... You're bringing some dark perspectives in here. This is threatening. I get anxious. Oh, I don't want to hear this. That's that's uh, I think more of a problem today than it would than maybe if you rewind fifty years, uh, the, the problem would be oh you're challenging heretic. You're coming with heretic impulses. Oh, this goes against my religion. <clears throat> today is this goes against what I want to feel. So I think that's a challenge that not everything is just peace and love and harmony. That there are some dark aspects to our existence although it's not nothing like hopeless or anything it's just that it takes more work than people thought but as for the harvesting it, for me it's not an either or it's more like as above so below uh, we live in a holographic universe after all so yeah it's a parallel process there yep. and uh, was it in your first chapter you talked about the food chain or was did that come later no that was also in the first chapter where i remind people to be because a big part of this understanding for me was that this entire realm, I, I've, I've uh, symbolized it in such a way that, simplifying, of course, but given that this is has become seen as a as an energy farm, that really we're we're here to be harvested for energy. Robert um, Robert Monroe called it loosh, and the ancients have different mm -hmm. words for it. But what would what is so interesting to me is when I got the metaphor that. Because for me, this 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 uh, I follow the Gnostic and the Cathar tradition very closely. That this particular realm that we consider as that which we see, smell, hear, and all the astral realms and everything else is a 
is it created by by a demiurge, by Rex Monday, by uh, a fallen angel, so to speak, and Yaldabaoth. built as an e- yeah built as an evil trapping uh, simulation. And something this large requires a massive power source. I mean, if you thought if you put this in computer terms, the amount of energy you would need to to keep the computers running, to keep this going, would be staggering. Mm-hmm. So it's ingenious, evil, but ingenious to have all the, the characters within your creation generate the power that keeps this running. Mm-hmm. And if people begin to see that when when we're told, oh, this is it's all about energy. That's true. It's all about energy from the standpoint of the system is looking to have a closed Ouroboros circuit of energy, not for any kind of positive purpose, just to keep the thing running. Because if the system ever shut off, then they would end. The <laughs> divine souls, or you might say divine sparks, we won't end. Divine sparks, we return to the mm. source. But all those that are manufactured only from the simulation will end. So they have a, they have a, they have a need to have to make sure that the simulation keeps running. And that's mm. where the material form has come in. It's it's their new it was their it was their ingenious way of ensuring the system was always going to be powered. And um, there's a part of me that's now pretty much clear that the reset we are under, people think it's about money, it's about government, it's about control, it's about and, and there's there's parts of it, but really it's about energy. It's a realization mm. of restructuring how the system generates energy from all of us. And once we recognize that's what's going on, that's what transhumanism really is, that's what the melding of human to machine, every, it's all about energy and how the system generates that energy back into itself. Because if we know that, we are 10 steps ahead of where this is going to try to go, and we can be very clear on what we want to do for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the simulation metaphor because I was just going to suggest it in my reply to your latest reasoning here. But then you did it. And uh, yeah, it's like, uh, but, but I don't think you do it in the book, actually, do you? Uh, maybe you do it later. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. The, it, it comes okay. along. Yeah, it does come into it eventually. Yeah, okay. Because uh, it's a beautiful one because uh, the players, when they go home, <laughs> Even if there's a, you know, if there's a short circuit in the power supply and playing uh, in the arcade, uh, what you call it, playing place, then uh, okay, the simulation is shut down, but the players are are still around. So, yeah, if they want to keep us there against their will, but this is, uh, I, I speculated this uh, when I talked with Riz Work in our show with him uh, called um, mm. "This Is the Simulation Model Hypothesis." Then uh, I, I said to him, "Look, if." Everybody gets it, or enough. It's never been about a majority. It's what we called a critical um, mass. If a critical mass gets something, then it becomes. It's a tw- the monkeys, right, on the island. Then suddenly, everybody else knows how to do do the thing, and enough people get it. And this has been true throughout the ages: revolutions, uh, new ideas, whatever. And I think. And this is this is just a thought. I, I don't know the, obviously the answer to this, but what if enough people get, let's call it the Gnostic or the Buddhistic uh, realization that, oh my God, this is a prison. Oh my God, it's all about energy. Oh my God, I can free myself. Oh my God, this is illusions. If enough people realize that, is there a r- risk that the whole simulation will be shut down and reset? If that could actually happen, but that won't because the 
there's very, I've now come to see there are very few divine spark human souls here. Uh, the majority in, in Gnostic terms, they, they had three different names for three different types of human forms. There was hillock or somatic, those who were basically operating on a uh, and on a, just a, like a animalistic, simplistic level. Then there was, uh, I think it was mm-hmm. psychic. And then there was, um, oh, it was the third one. I can't remember the, the three, but more like a philosophic. And to me, there's mm-hmm. there's very few that are in this philosophic state. There, there's, And I think this has been shown very well in the last three years, that there are a huge majority of those that are in human form who are, who are human, 100% human, 100% operate with DNA and thoughts and thinking and feelings and memories, but they don't have this this piece of divine spark for various reasons. So they there there's they they just can't choose a depth of deep or sleeping, right? Well, no, they're not even sleeping. They're missing the component that could allow them to philosophically mm. question everything. Um, they you know mm-hmm. they can question simplistic stuff, but they would never question the nature of reality. They would never question the nature of their self. They would never question the nature of death. They would never question the nature of who or what created this place. So because of that, because it's like it doesn't even exist, the critical mass could never be reached. I don't think. So we're mm-hmm. back to the idea of it's an individual journey, or it's a journey of small groups. It's a journey of finding those who are in the same line of understanding coming together for a while helping each other being being a support team to the process and knowing then but at some point we'll all have to we'll all have to go home our own way and our own route um but that that's that's one thing that's been I, I've known about this for 10 or 15 years but I didn't realize how widespread it was I didn't um mm. And that and that helps again. I need to wake people. I need to wake everyone up. I need to wake up the masses. I need to fix everything. And it's like, well, people have been trying that for thousands of years, and it doesn't work. Yeah, yeah. And, and it doesn't work for a reason. No. Once you know the reason, it won't work. Then we can again, mm. same thing energetically. We can shift the energy from trying to fix the external, trying to change the external, trying to transform the external, and first change and transform the self, and then help to change and transform a very small community with us. Once you do that, transform mm. your small. You you can definitely do that, but if you try to mm. if you try to project this energy into too big a thing, the system's got you. And there's been a lot of well-meaning, very mm. very highly caring individuals who tried hard and failed. Mm. And it's it's a reminder of yeah, you you have a finite amount of energy, more more energy and more power than we're ever told. The amount of the amount of energy and power. A human, a true human, has within us is is boundless. It is beyond what we can even comprehend. But even to recognize that, we have to use it in a really clear, understanding way. It's very easy to get it wasted. Yeah, um, yeah. So many people have. Oh, I'm going to change the system from within. Uh, they all, what they end up with is being changed themselves. They they get uh, knocked down and yeah. become a cog in the machine. Yeah. But uh, I'd say try to change your own system within. That works. Yeah. Because Hermes warned us, this wor- light work or whatever you want to call it, this spark awakening, it's going to be like two against one, he said. Two against one. So the odds are against you. But, he said, 
if you do it within, if you connect with the, what he called the spirit or noise yeah. is a better yes, word. Yeah. I don't often like the English translations. Like soul is a meaningless translation if you look at the, they had a very refined understanding of, we just refer to it as soul today. But he said, if you have that help, you'll make it. There's nothing you can't achieve if you have that help. I agree with everything you just said. I just take issue with one small thing and that's fair and, and, and you know, we're our own people so we have our own understanding but I only take issue with one thing and I'm not married to my conviction but per today I tend to be convinced that these people who you say like the spark I think their problem is that uh, you know, it takes certain experiences to Readjust the spark or, 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 or align it so that it can, you know, when, when you have a spark, you need fire, right? And if you don't have enough oxygen or enough combustible material, is that right? It won't burn. So I think the problem, because if you look at the back in history, there's always been a majority of sleepwalkers, muggles, exoteric people, whatever you want to call them. Yeah. And these people, and, but as we evolve collectively, more and more people get it. But then it's like the game is rigged because then we are multiplying so much. If you look at Earth today, so many people live here now uh, contemporaneously that it's probably the same number as has been on Earth since the last fall. Now, I, I won't even start guessing the amount of people before the previous resets, but that means that, okay, so they can't stop us from evolving, from getting it, because the more our souls are experiencing, the more the natural law of just expanding your understanding and consciousness has to be implemented. But then they can flood the system with many new souls, if you like. Uh, it's like if we're, if this is, is a school, indeed a school like the theosophists claim and many others, then okay. So some of us has been around and we are we done this classes, we're done, let's move up to the next class, next grade. But then bam, ten people have, have uh, been examined from grade one, ready to go to grade two, and then we get flooded with hundred new people that has to start with grade one again. I kind of tend to look at that little subpoint that I'm addressing now, that that is the problem, more than these being humans without the because I think that if you remove that spark, the fire aspect, and you only have air, water, and earth, then we're talking animals. Uh, and I, I don't look down at animals at all, but they have yet to develop the the spark in itself. So we, we have four levels or kingdoms, if you like. Right. And uh, I like this uh, arrangement. You said they had the somatic, the bodily oriented, the uh, psychologically oriented, and the spiritual or intuitive or the fire oriented i i think that's true for all human beings but i think that the things they haven't developed yet is their potentially at least that's what all the ancient systems agree about that there's something in man that makes these archons jealous that we have this connection all the way to the source so it's all about keeping us distracted keeping us away from from getting in in that uh connection so other than that i completely agree with what you said yeah it's just a and i would have 15 years ago i would have agreed with you too it's been a slight mm. change over the years and um, okay but that's that's what all this is about it's sharing information and everyone gets yeah. to work it within to because it all has to be go through an individual's experience and the the experience we have and how we've 
how we've dealt with reality, dealt with trauma, dealt with what we've, we'll, we'll always give a slightly different look. No two people will see everything the same way. It's, uh, it's more just, are they on, are, are two people on the same road? Mm. And uh, if so, then you can connect. Mm. But you mentioned uh, before we move on to the next yeah. Val Valerian or whatever. Yes. I, I haven't heard about him until you introduced him. Could you just uh, introduce him to our listeners too? Yeah, I, 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 the little I, I hadn't heard of him much either. I bumped into him through a gentleman uh, named Wayne Bush, who has a website called uh, Tricked by the Light, which was a very helpful starting point for me in my research. Um, but Val Valerian is supposed to have been a CIA operative in the 1980s who you wrote under a fake name but what's so interesting is he wrote his books uh called the matrix series so in 1990 he wrote five the the book 19, okay before the movies before well well before the movie yeah. and he called them yeah the matrix mm. the matrix series of books and a key element i mean he he went into a tremendous amount of ufo and and alien influence upon the earth that was a big part of his books but he did also he was one of the first ones to start writing about soul traps and the first one to start writing about the white light tunnel being a being the way that you get sucked into having your energy eaten and reincarnated back here and it he, he just happened to be one of the first ones to be putting this in print which found it mm. for me was interesting because of course uh like you I like to go how how far back can we find this stuff being mentioned in sort of more we we know it's there in the ancient world i can i can track many ancient sources and find similar ideas but once we stay get into the last hundred years well where can we find this information where can we find something similar being said and it's he's one of the he's one of the earliest to have been uh, along with robert monroe and carlos castaneda and a few others but yeah so valerian was just interesting because of the name of his books and then the topics that were in the books mm. This guy that I uh, mentioned, maybe he lifted from uh, this Val guy. Mm. I'll try to to find his name as we go along here. See see what you think. But uh, yeah, that was pretty early. Yeah. And um, uh, did he mention directly the moon? Uh, I'm pretty sure that he did. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. I'm not sure if he specifically. Um, because he has five books, so it's hard to remember what he said, but he, there was certainly, and I don't remember if he said that souls were eaten first, like sort of eaten and processed by the moon and then sent to the sun, or if the, the moon was just providing the time period and then the, the, the uh, soul, the, the thing was being eaten by the sun itself. Um, mm. because for me that, that, and that's chapter 13 of the book. It's all about the word soul. It's all about in English. How did that word come about? Because, in English, huh? the word sun is so strange to be used for that. In, in most European cultures, it's soul, S-O-L. Mm. And mm. it's the exact same sound, the exact same word as the, what became soul in the English language for this supposed part that we, we would call the psyche in, in, in ancient Greek, right? So mm. it, it, it indicates automatically that this, this light in the sky and this thing that we think of within us are linked because it has the same name. Mm. Mm. And it's always been a very good metaphor too, uh, because as above, so below. 
This brings us to your second chapter yep. of uh, part one. Part one, again, our foundation. Second chapter. I think that's so important that we have to dwell a little around that to even. Sure. <laughs> time is running away here. That's called Plato's Cave. I'm caught in a trap. I can't walk out. Now, not every, you know, in the old days, at least in this country, people had to do, before they studied at university, they had to take exphil, examen philosophicum. Yep. And that was basically to learn the basics of philosophy. No matter, even if it was economics or law or whatever, very healthy thing that they had to go through. That's, of course, removed today. But um, one of the things everybody encountered was Plato's cave. So everybody understood it. It could be a common metaphor. Today, not so much anymore. So I think you actually have to even start with Plato's version before you mention why you call chapter two Plato's cave. I'm caught in a trap. I can't walk out. Yeah, I, I, I originally this was going to be a book. I was going to write a book about exiting Plato's cave, and that was the the, the soul trap, and things came later, actually. Mm. And when I went into, I hadn't read the story of Plato's cave in twenty years, mm. and it's of course it's it's a it's an allegory that is held in such high regard. It's the key element of yes, movies like Dark City and Truman Show and The Matrix and Thirteenth mm. Floor, and so many are retellings of the story. Mm. And the fact that it's held in such high regard by so many people. I just treated it well it must be it must be great cuz everyone thinks it's great. Mm. And when I started redoing the book I said well I better reread the allegory myself. I was more just looking for quotes. I wasn't think I wasn't really thinking of examining it. I was just looking for quotes. And then I started reading it. And I started realizing this allegory is missing a whole lot of really important stuff. Mm. And it became chapter 2 is now actually a chapter of what is the story of Plato's cave missing as opposed to what it's saying and why is the story missing all of these important foundational elements? Hmm. So um, could, could you just give a brief uh, review of uh, the basic yeah. allegory from Plato? Yeah. So the here's the, here's the, or at least the, be, the beginning of it, which is the first part we can talk about the first mm. piece of it, mm. uh, which is, Normally, it would be presented by somebody saying, um, "There's a, this is a conversation that it's a conversation in one of Plato's books in which Socrates is having a conversation with Plato's um, brother Glaucon, and he Socrates is describing a place where a cave is inhabited by a number of prisoners chained and held in place since childhood." Uh, not only are they chained in their seats, but their heads are held in a way that they can only see the wall directly in front of them. Um, there's also a giant fire behind the prisoners with a walkway in front where people and animals pass in front of the fire so shadows can be cast on the cave wall. Mm. Sounds are also projected. The prisoners then see the shadows, hear the sounds, and believe that these are actual living creatures. So that's the initial setup of the Plato's Cave allegory, which is meant to describe one sense that the world we're seeing is illusionary, that the world we're seeing is is a is a trick, is a deception. It's not the material form is not really what we're seeing. But as soon as I read, as soon as I got to that point of the story, I, I had to start asking the key questions, which are the the problems arising is like, well, who are these prisoners? Why are they prisoners? What are they prisoners from? Mm. That's not described. Right. Why are the prisoners? Why are the prisoners uh, not in a prisoner of war camp? Why are they in a cave? Um, why uh, is this a natural cave? Is it a man-made cave? What mm. type of cave is it? Um, why are these beings 
spending so whoever these beings are which are never described why are the beings spending so much time and so much energy tricking a bunch of prisoners into believing into, into deceiving them and tricking them Mm. To me, these are absolutely foundational questions because it's indicated right in the allegory that the prisoners are us, that we we are the prisoners, but here we are the absolute foundation things that would explain who and what we really are aren't in the story. It's like it just it bypasses the key elements of the fundamental questions and just moves into into explanation. So I began wondering, there could be a couple reasons for that. One reason could be that this was a much deeper and more complete story, and over time it had been edited and uh, certain things taken out of it. It could have been, it it could have just been um, another one, of course, that it could be correct in its in its full form. In which case, then it's a type of deception in itself, because if you're not if you're not providing key elements or asking those key questions directly, then it's a form of deception. You, limited hangout, ancient style. Mm. Well, I'm sorry? A limited hangout Well, in ancient style. You know, limited hangouts is uh, Intel speak. You know, when you say part of the truth, but not the whole. Yeah. To distract. That That's possible. I mean, there, like I can say, there, there's, once I saw what, what's been given to us today, there was certainly had to be an examine. You had to start asking questions now, going back and saying, okay, if there was an original to the story, if we could go back 2,500 to 2,200 years, whatever, and find the original being put together, mm. how much is it the same as what we'd have now or how different is it? I th- and that was the first question I had to start wondering about is, do we even have a complete story? Because if it's missing, to me, if it's missing these foundational foundational elements, then it's very similar to the movie Dark City, which is the same thing. The, the, the strangers have brought these humans into Dark City, into this manufactured world, but never in the entire story, even to the end of it, do any of the humans ever know where the original world they came from is, mm. how they really got there, what the, the story is complete. The, the story of the origin of themselves is lost. Mm. And, um, and maybe that's part of the, the point of the story is, someone reading it should be doing what I did and say, well, I'm forgetting the rest of the story at this point because I don't, I don't have the the original answers. Let's Mm. get the original answers first and Mm. then we'll read the story. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it could just be a pedagogical tool that if you really get it, you should ask where's the rest. But I think I I have the answer to it. I'll suggest it to you now. Uh, It's kind of, kind of disappointing in, in, uh, it's not that deep, but the fact of the matter is that Plato was an initiate in a certain tradition and he was scolded already in his uh, own time for revealing too much Right, But he was on this trip of trying to bring these things out to the public, which had been preserved in um, ancient mystery schools. And so uh, he was doing a very careful job of balancing what he could tell and what he couldn't tell. And so I think the answer to your very timely question, where's the rest of the story, is precisely that, that he couldn't give it. Uh, I'll give you an example to uh, substantiate my assertion. Um, Two different scholars, brilliant scholars, one in America, one in England. Um, I don't know if one of them is alive still. They did parallel uh, without cooperating. They both cracked what's called the Plato Code. Uh, each on their own, uh, with different approaches. And uh, people should Google it. Totally great uh, insight. Uh, it seems that Plato, 
like Francis Bacon, didn't just write brilliantly in and of itself and, and deeply and all his stuff, but even the way they wrote it was carefully uh, designed because there is a code throughout the book. It's connected to stegianography that became very popular in the Renaissance, but it's uh, based on musical systems, Pythagorean uh, systems, which he was initiated into. And this system is communicating on its on its own level, just by the code itself. So when he writes, for example, about Atlantis, it's not just that. This is how they worked in the ancient time. People read the ancient Gnostics and other religious scriptures, and they think this is history, like we call it today. They think it's like direct instructions because we are overpolarized on the intellectual, mental, if you like, air part of ourselves. So we. Oh, it has to be logical. It has to be rational. It has to be oh, yes. uh, sequential, etc. That's not how they operated back in the day. Um, again, we can't project back to the past. So when they wrote, I don't know if you heard the saying that there can be more truth in in a piece of fiction than in a so-called uh, prosaic presentation. And truth they were concerned about, but they knew very well that there's many ways to trigger truth to realizations of truth and me just coming i'm going to give you all the answers now if anything if you even give me the time of day most probably i would just drive you away this missionary approach has never worked you know it comes it's a pollution in our culture this uh, trying to convince people this sales a pitch yes it's a capitalistic trait but it's deeper than that to mission it to convert people it comes from the abrahamic religions most specifically islam and christianity but yeah isn't that effective because they are the two biggest today no because neither of them used that principle to spread what they did use to spread was force they used a sword yeah. <laughs> i chop your head off or you convert after they're established they're continuing with this missionary thing which do, it doesn't do anything. The Masons have realized how to really get members. It's like Groucho Marx said, I don't want to belong to a club that wants me. So the Masons pretends, oh, we are so secret and it's so hard to get that. Anyone can get access to the Masons if they want to, okay? But they have this, yeah, you have to be recommended by two people. So, oh, now it's exclusive. Now they have something. They don't want me. I want them. This is psychology, right? Yeah. So- I'm rambling, sorry. Let's rewind to Plato. So I believe the reason he probably withheld parts of the story, I think it's partly because people like you then can ask the right question. Hey, if this is true, what about the rest? It's a huge context missing. Then you will ask the right question. And that, I mean, in his time, you, you would have some place to get those answers. Today, not so much. So that's my two cents on that. Very interesting thing. Well, for me, the, the the most interesting thing was, so I started looking, once I came up with this understanding of like, okay, this isn't here. Mm. So I went looking into reviews, or not reviews, but looking for, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, those who had given interpretations of the, the allegory of Plato's cave to see, well, who else has had, mm. had the same as, as me here? Who else is, is mentioning this is missing? Did anyone? <laughs> no, nobody. <laughs> Right. And that was the part. Because most of them are scholars. Yeah. And that was, I mean, didn't scholars, uh, esoteric writers, uh, I mean, anybody who was, sh I, I looked at probably a hundred different places and that what I just described was never mentioned. Mm -hmm. And 
it was it was at that point for me that I kind of said, okay, this what I'm doing here, what I'm doing with this book is important. I'm obviously going to, I'm obviously going to be opening some doors that uh, I'm not. And I'm not saying I'm the first to ever figure anything out. Certainly not. But it, it doesn't seem like some of the things I'm kind of pointing to have been really pointed to anywhere else before. And that's why I thought it gave me an extra energy to keep mm. going with the book because I started feeling that trusting that just keep digging, you're going to find more. Keep digging, you're going to find more. Yeah. Um, like I said to you in our pre-chat, uh, Dr. Peter Kingsley wrote a brilliant book called Reality. I recommended it to you and I recommend it to all my listeners because he deals with, it's like they partitioned uh, the mysteries. Plato has his version there, but others because you're very right, and it's so succinct this way you have decoded the context. He tells part of the story. You will find other parts among, for example, certain Gnostic impulses and also Eastern, of course. But they said they thought this death process was the big thing. And so when you read Parmenides or, or Peter Kingsley's book, Reality, where he takes on Parmenides, he gives some very interesting instructions that maybe can answer some of these these missing questions. Speaking of missing questions, I figured out what the chap is called, this uh, pilot and CIA agent. is called John Lair. John Lair. Oh, John Lair. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And he used to have a site. Yeah, John, uh, yeah of course. Yeah, he, he's passed now, but he used to have a site called thelivingmoon.com. The site is dead. Right. But he made a big deal out of that. Okay. So right. moving on here. Um your third chapter is called A Predator's Origin. Oh, again, a very important point. So <laughs> I don't know if you're going to get so much f further in your book for now. But let's 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 have a take on that. Predators? What on earth? Where are they coming from? Why are you talking about predators? Yeah, the the I use the I use that term because this the, this chapter looks kind of you might say a, th a few different we'll call them creation stories, non-traditional creation stories that people are not normally aware of. Normally a creation story is a loving God makes a place where he will make us to yeah learn and grow and have wonderful experiences, a few challenges in which we can overcome and then regain perfection and rejoin him again in this beautiful, wonderful, heavenly afterlife. But certain groups that I talk about in here, I, I have, I'd explain what the Cathars believed and presented what the Gnostics in the Nagamati text had to say. This chapter goes into uh, Robert Monroe and his um, theories of loosh, energy loosh production. Uh, I discussed Carlos Castaneda from what he had to say in his chapter, Mud Shadows, an active side of infinity. And I end with a, a vision that I had uh, while doing uh, while doing some shamanic drumming work with um, with a native medicine man. I chose the, I chose the chapter's name out of what, Carlos Castaneda's book called what we might call um, the mind or the, the a, a parasitic influence upon us in this realm, which which he described as a predator from the depths of the universe, mm -hmm. and that fits into the ideas of all of these all of these um, seemingly unconnected groups of that we yeah, that we live we live in a realm that's not built for us. It is built. It is built as a cage for us, mm. and um, for me, the, the particularly, uh, I spent a lot of time studying the the mysteries of southern France and, and trying to dig into the understandings of the Cathars and the Knights Templar because 
right away we see that on the surface how does a how does a how does a group of pacifistic vegetarian uh very um a group of caring about equality of not having churches how could they be such a threat that the church of rome needs to organize a crusade to kill them all off mm. and once you start having to ask that question honestly you start to have to dig into what they believe and start asking really deep questions of it's possible because these this is one of the few groups in our past that had had an answer understood it and was applying it and that made it very dangerous to those trying to keep the trying to keep the system going so that that chapter is about all of these subjects placed together as as a as a form of examination of where we really are mm. Mm. Yeah, uh, as I browse through this chapter here, there's so many uh, important clues and buzzwords. And uh, this Monroe guy, you you tie in also uh, uh, near death experiences, right? In in later parts of the book, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh no, OBE, out of body experiences. Yeah, he his his came from an out of body experience that he had, but it's. You might as well have called it a near-death experience because there wasn't much different between the two. Mm. Um, but in, in his, he was he was shared information that um, this this realm is a place which is designed for what they what these what these beings called a, a louche system. Louche being a specific type of energy that these beings um, would harvest mm. and use, particularly particularly at death. And he went through a gigantic this entire chapter of how many times this reality has been changed or we'll call them resets, might call them resets and yeah. been changed so that you got different animals, different ways we behave. And they, according to, to Monroe, there's two interesting pieces. The, the most being that supposedly these beings explained to him that the best energy they got was from conflict, discord and uh, disagreement. So they built um, us humans specifically uh, forms in order to create as much conflict and difficulty and mm. confusion as possible because it gave them the best energy. For me, what's what's the most interesting thing about the whole story of Robert Monroe is that, so he wrote this in 1971. This book came out, Our Journeys. He, I guess, went into a two or three month depression where he didn't leave his house. He was After writing this book, he, he was just flat out, couldn't get out of bed. All of a sudden, one day he got out of bed and of course, he he wound up creating one of the largest out of body psychic research institutes, and it was the Monroe Institute. This inst he and this institute have not talked about this chapter again in the last fifty years. Mm -hmm. It was basically ignored ever since. And if you call them today and try to get information to ask questions about it, they will not answer any of your questions. Mm -hmm. It is very very strange. Mm -hmm co-opted usurped that happens with all the vehicles of light sooner or later the, you know in esoterica they have this concept of the counter tradition and uh, that's the idea that um, if there's enough uh, surplus of light um they, it's like you go in the forest and lit a fire you'll uh, attract all sorts of <laughs> critters and insects so so if that happens you get a enough pool of light then uh, they'll come and they'll 
try to sabotage it. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I think it is, it's very interesting because you can see many great projects throughout the uh, ages have often been fallen by the most petty, egocentric human conflicts. So you have a spiritual group or, or a tradition or whatever, school, whatever, and uh, often the best the guy who founds it or whatever is is the best and then comes maybe he dies and then there's a petty power battle etc so it's very interesting this psychological aspect that these creatures these entities these beings whatever we should call them these uh, structure um, agent smiths come in and try to induce conflict but energy can be harvested in many ways you of course you have the concept of incubus and succubus often connected to the sexual production of energy now sexuality creativity is the same it's just two different levels of using that same energy and uh, you also mentioned death so i'm thinking for example there's an explosion in your pineal of uh, dmt maybe that could be connected but the most importantly, I think, is to point to uh, Wilhelm Reich because he did something similar in a modern way. He talked about organ and uh, he made these cloud busters made popular in Kate Bush's uh, video, music video about cloud busting, where he felt that there was a way you could um, actually <laughs> battle this. He he also connected it to UFOs. I mean, there's so much to say here, but you you get it from these triggers I, I've thrown out, right? Oh, I, totally, and uh, yeah, and know all about Wilhelm Reich, and um, but that that's a really good example of what you've given. That one of the easiest ways to infiltrate anything is you don't need to infiltrate a person or or a body into something. You just infiltrate one of the minds, mm. and that's again this idea of predator, this idea of parasite, this idea of entities that people don't want to acknowledge but that's the way this reality we're in is structured and that's it's very easy it's very easy unfortunately for anyone to come in contact with them and to pick them up without knowing it and they can stick around for a long time influencing a tremendous number of human choices and decisions and actions and um they they always and they're, they're the, yeah like you kind of said the best way to go about it is just not just not just not get them in the first place. Mm. Mm. Okay, great stuff, man. Great stuff. Now the last three chapters of your first part, I, I guess that's what we will have time for in part two, and we can go into his next part called examination. Sure, but, but okay, okay, we don't know officially with part one. So if you don't mind, let's just take a quick break, and we'll soon be back. Yeah, of course. All of our files are free and will remain free. If you like the show, you can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the pay link on our webpage. Thanks. Thanks. 